would like to share some thoughts about right view, which is really the beginning and the ending of the path of awakening. I'm sure you're quite aware that in the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path begins with right view. And of course, it's not a linear path. It's not that at the beginning of the path we should be completely awakened. You know, you think it's, that doesn't make sense. You think right view should come at the end. But there's a certain degree of right view that begins the path and then permeates all aspects of our practice, and it keeps cycling through. It's certainly not a linear path anyway, right? It's circular, kind of spiraling deeper and deeper. So even to begin our practice, we, we need and we have some, some simple aspect, maybe not simple, but essential aspect of right view. And this is something we can think about intellectually, but keep kind of coming back to this attitude of how we relate to our moment-to-moment practice, whether it's from right view, right understanding, or from confusion. It really affects how we practice. The attitude in our mind, in our awareness, in a moment of paying attention. It's a bit what James was talking about last night when he talked about bringing to attention bringing to mindfulness the qualities of interest, relax, and being kind. Get to that later, but that's, you can see, that's the quality in a moment of awareness. And that's really what right view points to. So it's the heart of the Buddhist teaching. So we've been giving, you know, lots of instructions. You all know even many more techniques. And I'm sure you know this, but just a reminder that the practice isn't about getting the technique right. The techniques, all the meditation techniques, all the methods, all the instructions, they're not about getting those right so that makes you a good meditator, right? The Buddha wasn't there to teach, this is how to be the perfect follower of the breath. And if you can do it perfect, you're enlightened. No, it's in service of cultivating steady mindfulness, right? I hope you nod, right, yes. In in, in (laughs) at least a moment of mindfulness, getting more and more steady. All of Vipassana techniques are in service of that. That's the beginning of right view. Right view then imbues everything. But even steady mindfulness Why do we want to cultivate that? That's not an end in itself either. You know, as the Buddha often spoke, or, you know, his whole teaching, which has many wonderful, fantastic side effects, you know, and uh, results, but the, the heart of the teaching is to really awaken our hearts and minds from delusion, from the confusion that create suffering arising in our hearts, in our minds, on a moment-to-moment basis from the way we, the heart and mind, responds to situations inaccurately, incorrectly, because we don't recognize what's really going on. So his whole teaching is to really um, have the 
the motivation, have the understanding or the trust, the faith really, the sada, in this potential that freeing the heart and mind from confusion and the suffering is really possible. And as he said at times in different suttas, don't settle for anything less. Even for wholesome states of mind, that's wonderful, don't settle for that. This is really kind of the, the deepest aspect of right view, which we cycle into and out of over and over, right? We keep coming to understand it a little bit more than we lose it completely. That's on the deepest level. But even to begin our practice, knowing that the right view that can, can lead us to even start is the sense that somehow we're not really getting it right. Huh? I mean, if we really had it all together and things made sense, who would spend a month sitting here like this? You know, it's not really like the big vacation. Come here because, and, and you know, you've all practiced, you know it's not going to be a joy ride, right? You know that, right? <laughs> you may be hoping, let me just tell you right now, and never mind, James isn't here, but I'm just telling you right now, <laughs> there'll be moments that it could be a joy ride. And there'll be plenty of moments that it's not, because that's life. You think life gets different because you're sitting on a cushion? No, you just see it more clearly. But, so, sati, the mindfulness, it's not an end in itself, but it's the amazing tool, the steadiness of mindfulness is the amazing tool. What does it do? How does it, how does it open the potential of this, this really deep potential of awakening? It's not that mindfulness is creating a new reality. It allows us to recognize this reality, this moment of mind-body experience accurately. We may think we're recognizing accurately, but if we were, we wouldn't be so embroiled in confusion. One of the ways Sayadaw Tejaniya defines Vipassana meditation, defines it as experiencing the mind and body directly from moment to moment with the right understanding. So that's what I talk about tonight, the beginning right understanding, that we can remind ourselves. We have to remind ourselves because it's not completely, you know, in ourselves all the time. So right view, which is often the translation of samaditi, right view, the first step of the Eightfold Path. It's not about right view, it's not about learning another set of beliefs or believing anything, or uh, taking another set of concepts and really saying this is true, everything else is false. Not even the Buddha's teaching. Right view isn't about believing anything. But I, I sometimes it's translated as, as right or wise understanding, which is also a good way. But personally, in the way I'm talking tonight, I really like the translation of right view, because I think it's very literal. It's a far more, right view is far more simple and I would say elegant than believing another set of concepts or 
views or explanations or whatever. It's simple, elegant, and totally radical in terms of our experience. Right view is literal, real, literal, and it means the view, the way we recognize ourselves, the world, in a moment of experience. There's only this moment of experience. It's, it's right in terms of being accurate. In terms of just in a moment recognizing what's actually happening, not through some veil some mist of assumption, distortion, self-identification, liking, disliking, whatever, that in the beginning of practice, we don't even know that's there. You know, I think, what are you talking about? I'm just seeing how it is. It's cold and I don't feel good and that's how it is. Let's fix it, you know? That's our idea of what's going on. You come in here, it's cold in the morning, they should get this heat together. That's just the reality. This is wrong, okay? There's a little extra, you get a little extra in that. So the right view, just this moment, how is it? There's a, a phrase, in one of, it's, it's listed in Pali, it's one of the higher knowledges, realizations, and the phrase in Pali, which I love, is yata bhuta jnana dasana, which means knowledge and vision of things as they have come to be. And uh, I'm indebted to Gil Fransdahl for giving it that precision of, of translation because it's often things as they are, but that gives, us, uh, that gives a, a solidness. And on things as they are, again, we're feeling it's like this now, solid, non-changing. Things as they have come to be gives me the sense of the, the fluidity that they've come to be in this moment as a result of all so many causes and conditions that there's no way we can even name them all. But this moment could not possibly be different. It's impossible because this is how it's come to be right now. You know? And the next moment it will come to be in a different way. So things as they have come to be recognizes the impermanence, the changing nature, the conditionality, the impersonality, and the fact that when it's recognized accurately, appropriate response is much more possible, much more possible. So this is the sense of right view. Things as they have come to be. When you look at the Buddha or read about the Buddha after his awakening, for years I thought, you, you know, I, I never thought of right view and right understanding as being oh, we recognize experience differently and thus respond more appropriately. But in the back of my mind, I always feeling somehow it all gets, should get better, shouldn't it? I mean, things should shape up somehow. <laughs> we should shape up the world for God's sake. People should get better. Something should change for God's sake. But when you uh, look at the Buddhist life, he woke up, the peaceful one, the fully awakened one, into the same world that he was asleep in, right? He woke up in the same world. Things didn't change. There were still wars and poverty and prejudice and bias. He lived, you know, had physical ailments. People still acted in totally irrational, stupid ways, both to him and otherwise. His awakening 
didn't end violence in the world, it didn't end hatred, it didn't end prejudice. But how he lived in and understood and related to the world was completely different. He lived in a world of relationships and action, you know? So when I looked at that, oh, right, so what is awakening about? What is right view? It doesn't mean people start acting nice necessarily. And they walk and say, oh, you look so bright and clear. Don't you kind of secretly think when you leave the retreat, everyone you go, wow, you're really amazing. You're just filled with metta and compassion, right? Yeah. Once in a while that happens. <laughs> what does once in a while? It doesn't last, because <laughs> nothing does. <laughs> but that's not really what it's about. So what changed? What changes? How we recognize and how we respond. So we move from misperceiving. We perceive wrongly, we interpret wrongly, so we respond in a way that increases our own confusion and suffering. And it's like we don't even know a lot of the time that's what we're doing. That's what the Buddha is talking about with wrong view. And so for me, it's, it's fascinating when I can start to tune into. It's also painful at times when we start to tune into, you know, all the ways we're misinterpreting and kind of complicating things for ourselves. So again, I'm trying to talk on a very kind of a basic level of right view. But so why? Why do we so misperceive? Why does it, why do we mis, misrespond, get embroil ourselves in so much suffering? And I'm not going back to an origins of things, okay, at the beginning, forget that. The Buddha said, you know, one of the things that'll drive you crazy is trying to think about the beginnings of the universe. So he didn't know about the Big Bang, I guess. So, how we perceive, how we think about things. This is what the heart of what the Buddha's teaching is. When he talks about, he talked about how his teaching is against the stream, right? Against the stream of common society, of common culture, of all the different common cultures. That's not so different now as it was then. But it's not only the external culture he's talking about but the internal ways that we uh, perceive and understand the world, we may not even recognize what those are. Taken for granted. You know, as it's often said, when we're growing up in a particular family, in a particular culture, and if we're only surrounded, if you happen to be in a place that you're only surrounded by that particular culture, you don't even realize that there's other possibilities, that there's so many other cultures and so many other ways people live until you travel a little bit or step outside, if, if you happen to be able to live in a bubble like that. But then you start to see, wow, this is true for all of us, that how we're brought up and the cultures we, we live in and the things that we uh, meet in our lives have an effect on how we interpret, how we look at things. That Some things we recognize, but, but much we don't. And so the Buddhist teaching, awareness practice actually, moment-to-moment -moment awareness practice is actually a stepping outside of the 
kind of unrecognized, unspoken, unquestioned worldview, self-view that maybe we maybe have been operating from in the background, whatever it is. And this can be very uncomfortable at times, even if the self-worldview isn't a particularly happy, pleasant one, but it's, it's familiar, like, you know, an old cozy bathrobe, you know, and you just kind of just get all cozy in it, even though you get in it in the morning and you get really depressed and you never want to go outside and you just slump around the house, but you don't want to take it off because it's so cozy. Sort of like that. (laughs) So just an, an example, this is kind of not a personal example of the, the ways, ideas we don't even recognize then shape how we interpret and perceive things. I hope this isn't, anyway, I hope this works. It worked for me. I was reading a book uh, some years ago. Um, well, I didn't take very good notes. I think the book was called Nonviolence. But anyway, uh, I was reading the foreword by His Holiness the Dalai Lama. And he's talking, so, talking about nonviolence as, as the word, you know, and, and saying also how in, uh, in Gandhi's philosophy and teaching, so in, in the Hindi, I think, it's ahimsa, that both of those are violence or ahimsa's violence. Ahimsa is the negation of violence, just like nonviolence is the negation of violence. And so without recognizing it, He says, it's as if saying violence is the norm and nonviolence, rather than being a really active, um, proactive response to life without being a whole view of life, it's simply, in that way, ahimsa, nonviolence, it's like it's the negation of violence. You know, and so violence being the, the thing that's expected. He said, what if you turn it around? What if the only word for war were non-peace? You get a sense? Just a little thing like that. You don't have to, wow, I don't even recognize the subtle effect words can have like that, you know? So it's sort of to turn inward and kind of see, you kind of have to stretch the mind a little bit. What would that mean? Just in, on the same, along the same theme, um, I heard an interview soon after I was reading this with, on the radio, part of an interview, with James Lawson. Do you know who he is? He's one of the foremost, he's, he's pretty elderly now. I think he's still alive, two years ago he was. Pretty elderly now, but he's one of the foremost theorists in this country on um, the philosophy and the actions of nonviolence. He was, um, uh, studied Gandhian principles in India. He was a... Um, conscientious objector during the Korean War. But during the civil rights movement, starting in the late 50s and early 60s, he was really one of the main people who was training all the the civil rights, especially those young people in Nashville who started the Freedom Rides and the sit-ins. He was really the major trainer of of how to do really um, important action from nonviolent principles. And so this interview, this is just one line, one line from the thing, but the interviewer was asking him, 
well, how do you then deal with violence if you're talking about nonviolence? And he said, and this is this, he goes, you're asking the question from the wrong angle. And it's like, it's like, you know, you, nonviolence creates, it stems from a completely different configuration of power than the one you're imagining or the one that would ask, well, how do you deal with violence? But he didn't really go into it or outline it, you know, in that interview, but it, it's that same sense of if non-peace is the only word for war, everything changes. And he's saying it's a completely different configuration of power. You, you're asking from basically from the other way of perceiving, which is really what we're doing all the time in our daily life. Not on that, about that. Just, okay, one last thing that gives a hint, a hint of it too from Martin Luther King. Nonviolence means avoiding not only external physical violence, but also internal violence of the spirit. You not only refuse to shoot a person, you refuse to hate them. So just to me, that's just a little sense of looking from a whole different angle, from a whole different place, a configuration of power that has nothing to do with the external kind of power we think of, but he's always talking about soul force, power of the heart. So just an example of, you can't even think all the depth of that. Well, that's just the example I was giving to take up that our essential, the essential wrong view, misinterpretation that the Buddha's teachings speak to that we carry around with us because it just seems so normal. You know what I'm going to say, I'm sure. Is this um, Sakaya Ditti. Ditti means view. Sakaya means personality or identity view. So what that means really and a nitty-gritty moment-to-moment experience is there's the whole field of sense experiences happening. I think Sally mentioned the sixth sense experience. So there's seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, physical sensations, thoughts, moods, images, all arising from moment to moment, right? Right? We agree on that? And it's just like this, seems like a flow, a stream, right? One after the other after the other. This is one of the ways the Buddha described our, our life. So this is just going on. Whenever one of those is particularly the energy of grasping comes, it's identified, it's felt as taken as being me or mine, any particular of the sense experiences, that's a moment of Sakaya Ditti, a moment of personality view. Now mostly, when we're meditating, we might notice when we're being quiet, one of the advantages of retreat environment, we, we're actually first even noticing there's this constant flow of sense experiences. And we might notice that some are just coming and going and then suddenly there's this energy of kind of like a mental energy that kind of grasps it and go, yes, this is happening to me. And it feels different from all the other ones. In our daily life, it's still like this, but it's happening so fast Generally, I think a lot, if we don't notice a particular thing like that, but it just feels as though it's me. And this stuff is either happening in me or to me. This is me in my life, right? Or am I the only one? <laughs> Creating a sense of self and other. The way Sony Rinpoche describes it, he called it this, he said, with this fascination with me, with the sense of me. And that's a real feeling the sense of me, 
right? Sometimes when we talk about not uh, about about Sakaya Ditti being a view, not being an accurate interpretation of reality, then we think, well, there's no should be no sense of me, but there is a sense of me, isn't there? Do you have a sense of, of me? Not of me, of you. <laughs> Do you have a sense of being me or I sometimes in the day? No, no. <laughs> Do you notice it? It can be noticed because it's not always there. But this is, I, I actually love exploring that in practice. But it's so frequent and it's so taken for granted, sort of like I was saying before about, you know, nonviolence. You don't even think about it. So the sense of me isn't thought about. So Sony says, this is like this fascination with me. This sense of me, which is a real kind of sense if I'm, it feels like me. It doesn't mean it is, it feels like you. So that's like the measuring point for all experience. Everything relates back to the sense of me, you know? Like Joseph, Joseph gives some, a great example when he was standing once, uh, he's on a retreat, and he was standing in the food line for lunch and he was the second in line. And the, the person in front of him, there was big pots, and the person lifted the top off the pot and dropped it and it made a heck of a racket. You can imagine, right, in the silence deep in a retreat. Heck of a racket, everybody looks. And he said his first thought was, it wasn't me. <laughs> we do that, it's all about me, right? The measuring point for everything. It's cold out, it's good for me, it's bad for me. Something happens, we think, well, what's this gonna mean to me? You know? incredible things happening in the world, good, bad, really, well, what's this gonna mean for me? First thing, and then we can widen out. This isn't to be looked at as judgment or self-judgment. What's that? That's all about me too, right? I'm just the most self-oriented person in the world. I'm the most self-judging person here. I mean, just watch it all, watch it all, but don't take it personally. So he says, this is just what we, everything measured from that sense of me. It's natural, but that doesn't make it true. It's really fascinating. And that's where we get seduced into it. That's where we really don't quite notice. So this is where our wrong view feeds the confusion that keeps us from recognizing in any moment accurately what's occurring. So, giving examples, is this incredible complexity comes into the reactions to a moment of experience as soon as it's being uh, recognized through the veil, the distortion of Sakaya Ditti of me. Even this, though, can be recognized with mindfulness. There's nothing that awareness can't recognize. So it's not, it's not like this is hopeless, otherwise there would be no point. I'm, I'm bringing it up so we can explore it. But the complexity of our life, of the response to all these different sense impressions comes, is triggered by, distorted by, the not recognizing Sakaya Ditti when it's operative in a particular moment of mindfulness, a particular moment of awareness. So, mm, simple example. So the other morning when it was really cold, start with just perception, just the recognition of experience. Say you're walking up, I'm, I'm very, my body's very sensitive to cold. So I'm using that for an example. So say walking outside and it's really cold is coming and frigid and, and the 
cold sensation is occurring, maybe there's a sound of wind, and there's an experience of that as being unpleasant. That would just be perception. Coldness feels like this, wind, unpleasant. But the, the sense of Sakaya Ditti would be, I'm so cold. I'm so cold. You get a sense of the di- cold is like this, I'm so cold. Just starts there. And it's unpleasant. So then from that, from what we perceive, as the Buddha says, we think about. Like the example I was giving before, I'm so cold and I come in here to sit and it's 58 degrees in here. Can't these people get themselves together? Don't they know? Okay, maybe we want to save propane. Turns out there wasn't any propane, but maybe we want to save it. Don't they know there's this flu season? The last thing we want to do is all get sick here, and right? So, <laughs> depends how far that goes, you know? One thought might be all, or maybe it went for 25 minutes, you know? Who was suffering? Only one person was suffering from that train of that particular train of thought. The other person was suffering from their particular train of thought. But that's the incredible complexity that's coming from the sense of me. Those thoughts, and it could be on the pleasant side. I'm just using the unpleasant because it's more obviously suffering. But so that's all going on. And then it comes down into a view. Yes, this is true. It's too cold. They're not on top of it. I'm going to get sick. This is not okay. This isn't good for my body, right? And it's all so solid. You get a sense of that? You know, the sense of yata bhuta, things as they are. But is, so that's sati. You might be noticing all that, but if you don't recognize the view of self and the aversion that's kind of distorting perception, it's sati, but it's not what Sally mentioned the other night, samasati. Uh, the path factor, right mindfulness. Because right mindfulness recognizes the qualities in the citta. Mindfulness can be aware of sakaya ditti, can be aware of aversion. That's fine. You know it's there. It still feels like aversion. It's still unpleasant, but mindfulness is recognizing it. That's samasati. That's path factor mindfulness. Unrecognized, we just spin, 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 right? As the Buddha said, agitation through clinging clinging to sense of self, clinging to the belief, clinging to the dislike, clinging to the unpleasant. Just, and then if you think, ah, oh, I'm clinging again. <laughs> it's just another thought of me that's clinging. But what's wonderful, what's amazing, what's so freeing about awareness, mindfulness, is at any moment, it can flip from being completely lost in the Sakaya Dittis to, oh, sense of self is like this. Or, I'm so cold, this is impossible, I can't bear it. Oh, coldness feels like this. It still feels cold. It doesn't like at all mellow and wonderful. It still feels cold, but it's just the sensations. And nothing created around it. That's the simplicity of clear seeing versus the complexity of the attachment of sense of self and all the reactions that come from that. Ajahn Semedo, you know, the American who's been a, a monk in the Thai forest tradition for 40-some-odd years, Ajahn Semedo, he says, we create ourselves through our thoughts, and we cannot create an ultimately peaceful self. Check it out. <laughs> you got a lot of time to see that. But if you just look at the difference between 
this complication and the simple being, oh, sensation cold is like this. It's really unpleasant. Unpleasant feels like this. And a thought comes up. I wonder why it's so cold. What's the matter? And you go, okay, wondering feels like this. It's not that you have to push anything away. It's just shifting from the unconscious, unrecognizing that we're believing this interpretation to what's the actual sense experience now? Physical coldness, mental unpleasant, mental thought, physical contraction around the coldness, mental unpleasant, more mental unpleasant thought because the contraction's more unpleasant than the coldness, which is actually just cold, and spirals from this, oh yeah, Sakayaditi's like this. I'm not just saying, I do that all the time. It, it lands you in the middle of the experience. It's not a suppression or a pushing away at all. It's like, oh, it's like this now, which is a phrase Ajahn Sumedho uses. It really helps me because sometimes I'm trying to, my mind's trying to analyze, like name it like I just did, cold sensation, unpleasant sensation, thought, and really get into that. But behind it all, that can come from a trying to control and get it all copacetic, right? If I can name it all and be mindful. And I said, oh, it's like this now. Not even name it. Just like this now, the resistance goes and just being fully present in that moment. And then the next thing arises. And if you're really cold and the thought can, well, why don't I just put a blanket around me? There's nothing wrong with that. Just put on a blanket for the love of God and stop whining, Carol. And, <laughs> you know, it's like so much more simple. And it doesn't mean we can't respond in, a, in an intelligent way, you know, but we're able to see what's actually going on rather than running all over the place as I did once at IMS many years ago. Yogi mind, when everything's exaggerated and you're really not seeing clearly and the heating pipe started playing the Rolling Stones. Not really, okay. <laughs> so it was so loud. I said, how can it be so loud? These heating, something's gone. I was on staff at the time, so I knew the, you know, and I was ending up running around down in the boiler room, way down in the basement to see if the, if the furnaces were working right, as if I would know, right? As a cook, what do I know from <laughs> furnaces? Nothing. It's got to be something wrong. It can't be making so much noise instead of just, oh, sounds like this now. It's probably not the Rolling Stones, but that could be, you know, a perception, but okay, it's loud. It's like this now. So much more simple. So much more simple and appropriate. So just that simplicity of recognizing what's happening, sensation, that's, that's samasati. In that particular moment, it's not like it's an incredibly powerful insight. But what we're cultivating through all the techniques is the moment-to-moment-to-moment recognition, recognition of this simple awareness. And that's what starts to give awareness its own momentum. We start to be able then to see more accurately, more clearly. Sayadaw Tejaniya likes to describe, instead of thinking of stuff as whatever's occurring as ourself, as to just think of its, its nature. Like we tend, we may get upset about the weather, but probably, at least in this culture, we don't think we can control it. And so I may be upset about it, but I'm not really going to go out there and start blaming myself because it's raining. You know, or it's snowing, right? So that's that little bit of assuming we have control is taken away. 
So when we're exploring in our practice, moment-to-moment experience, especially when we start to see these, uh, the painful, the distorting mental states really that come when, we, when, when we're looking through wrong view, to recognize that these also are simply arising, yata bhuta, they've come to be as they are in this moment due to just previous habits of mind. It isn't personal. So the deeply conditioned habits, as I'm sure you know, the Buddha spoke of the roots of really our confusion, our deep suffering, coming from arising in this mind-body system as being the the mental states or mental factors, mental quality, mental mind, heart of um, confusion, delusion, not recognizing clearly, just what I've been talking about, leading to responses of either great greed, fixation, holding on, wanting, leaning forward, craving, or hatred, aversion, fear, pushing away. And that these three are kind of the, the root mental qualities that lead to all the other suffering states that we experience. And they really arise out of the misperception of relating to any experiences, me or mine. And when they're present and not recognized, they're going to be present a lot. And as we cultivate mindful awareness and we start to recognize them more and more and more, this is a very important part of practice. This is where I was going with the seeing it as nature. If we start to recognize, for instance, how often wanting something to be different arises, even some little thing. If then in that moment it's taken as me, it's taken as my, I'm such a greedy person, or oh, this is, I can't believe wanting is coming up again, I'm hopeless, you know. Then right away we're back in the extra suffering and we don't want to see it because we're taking it personal and it's really, really hard. But if we say, wow, wanting coming up again, or fear coming up around. I remember one period in practice where I never, I thought, I don't have that much fear. I was waiting for some big, total panic that was going to send me fleeing. But then I started to notice little blips of fear coming up about everything. And I remember, this was one phase of practice, I mean, I wasn't even on retreat. I was home and I was, I was taking the tea kettle off the stove, right? And I had this fear I was doing it wrong. Take, how can you, you know, take the tea kettle off the stove wrong? And a fear, I thought, oh my God, this is amazing. Now, if I took that personally, that would go down the path of, well, you're completely hopeless. All these years of practice, you're afraid of how you're taking off the tea kettle? Why don't you just hang it up? You know it's hopeless. You know, or get really overwhelmed. But when you're seeing, wow, this is a habit of mine, that's fascinating. It's not something about Carol, because there's not a solid Carol here anyway. It's just seeing how this has been conditioned in this mind-body system, but the awareness noticing it is, as James said, really interested. It won't be every moment, but just to hold that sense of whatever's coming up in this moment is arising due to it's just been practiced a lot, it's arisen during conditions, and here we're shifting the, the yata bhuta, recognizing things as they have come to be in this moment, allows the clear seeing that we can respond differently in this next moment. 
like I said, instead of getting all upset about the cold, you just see, oh, cold feels like this, you put on a blanket, no big whoop, you know? So it makes it possible, clear seeing, to respond appropriately. So it's not that these things aren't going to arise, greed, hatred, confusion. They will. They are. And the more we practice mindfulness and trust it, we'll see them more. Sometimes people come in and they'll say, oh my God, I'm a million times worse than when I started practice. I'm a hopeless neurotic mess. And we're just seeing what we didn't see before because the faith is getting stronger. The mindfulness is getting more continuous. It's getting its momentum. There's more samasati than there was, you know, and so it gives us the heart and the strength to really look at it, not take it so personal. And it's important to see because without it, these, these difficult states are what lead to the distortions that we recognize inaccurately. It's a, um, a sutta. The Buddha, just a very brief one, but he talked about the four ways of going off course. The four ways of wrong action. And they're basically this. When there's prejudice based on what we like, what we desire. Prejudice based on what we dislike, based on anger. Prejudice based on delusion, not recognizing accurately. Prejudice based on fear. I mean, we see this in the world clearly, right? Clearly. We can see, I imagine, for you, certainly for me, can see how that in other people impacts me, how it impacts other people, can get really, um, really filled with despair and pain around that. What we're doing here, though, and what is really amazing about this a month period or a two-week period of silent, intensive practice where we're not so much relating to each other here or to the outside world. It's, as I said with the Buddha, it's not that our awakening fixes the outside world. But what we are looking at is saying, okay, it's not only everyone else who has prejudices based on likes and dislikes, on anger, on fear, on delusion. It's also arising from time to time in this mind and heart and completely clouding accurate recognition, completely clouding appropriate response, and as the Buddha said, leading to more agitation through clinging, affecting how I can relate to others in the world. So this is some of the why we need faith. As James was talking, we, these five wholesome spiritual faculties, they do arise through our willingness to keep cultivating steady mindfulness. And they're essential. There's times we really need to really call on confidence, on your faith or your trust. Because the stuff that comes up, we're, we're stepping outside of the comfort zone, you know, to, to recognize these things. Or sometimes we can bring in the intellectual understanding of right view, really why I'm talking about it tonight. Sometimes I'll really say, I'm totally caught and I go, right, this is nature. This is cause and effect. It's like this now. And it gives me the faith just to relax into it. It's like this now. This feels horrible. It's like this now. For this instant, it feels horrible. Okay. But it doesn't have to have all the stories about me and past and future and everything. It's just like this now. And then there's a possibility for the next moment to arise with response of more clarity, more wholesomeness. 
more compassion, more wisdom. When we don't recognize the effect of Sakaya Ditti, or that it's present, we bring the same sense of, of um, misperception into how we approach our practice, just our simple mindfulness practice, you know. So this is what so frequently can lead to striving, trying to make your experience be a certain way. Probably none of you have ever you know, fallen into that. Even trying to make the breath be a certain way, as if it matters. The breath is going to come and go, and if it stops coming and going, you won't be there to care about it. But it's going to come and go, and it's, it's, the, it's the object that helps us re-recognize awareness. It's not about getting a better breath. And you think, well, I, sh- I shouldn't be thinking about things. Thinking is occurring. That's what's happening. That's then the object to bring us back into Awareness, any object can bring awareness. But when we don't recognize that the sense of me doing is behind the technique, then we can practice, this is Ajahn Sumedho says, our tendency is to think, you know, you can't understand or even think about Sakaya Ditti in the beginning of practice. It's too, uh, too obscure, it's too complex. You have to practice a long time. But he said, no, I've come to really believe, and I agree with him, that's crazy. He says, why practice for 20 years from the delusion that I'm practicing to get somewhere and make something happen? Why spend 20 years doing that? You can start to just begin to explore, to bring in and recognize when sense of self psychiatry is occurring. It's not going to stop occurring, but we can just recognize it, as I've been talking about, and see the difference between the complexity and the simplicity when it's there and when it's not, without even taking that personally. Sakaya Ditti also isn't personal. <laughs> it's just a habit of misinterpretation of our minds. So, and we don't recognize it. And I've, I mean, I've probably many of us have practiced with great, great diligence, sincerity, great effort. And behind that, without recognizing so much of it is coming from that forceful striving, trying to get, trying to do, trying to be better, or trying to get rid of, trying to change your personality. Does, does this resonate with anybody? <laughs> no, I'm serious. I mean, and, instead of, and then we think, okay, well, I've got to stop doing that, right? I mean, okay, I'm just going to recognize Sakai Ditti and stop doing that, right? No more striving. No. This is the radical nature of moment-to-moment mindfulness practice. Sati, mindfulness of just what is occurring, no matter what is occurring. So striving, striving feels like this. It's just another movement of mind. It's another mental state. Trying to get rid of striving feels like this, (laughs) right? You just keep noticing. It's like a, a good place you can kind of see it in, in minuscule is like the sense of trying to control your breath. Did you ever get into that? You're just trying to notice the breath and then as soon as you notice, you, you're trying to control it and you go, oh God, I'm not supposed to control the breath. I'm going to not control the breath. I'm going to feel... Then you try to just look at it from the side because you're not trying to control it. You know? I'm not really controlling it. Oh, controlling, controlling, never mind. I'm going, oh, here and here and here. Am I controlling it? You know, and you, you're like all wrapped up in a knot. What about, oh, controlling feels like this. Okay, that's just what's occurring. 
Controlling feels like this. I don't like it. Okay, not liking feels like this. Really? Really? I'm not kidding. This is really the, the quality of samasati, recognizing what's occurring. Steady, steady awareness starts to get its own momentum. Mingyur Rinpoche, describing this, says, we give attention to the object of meditation to support the recognition of awareness, of mindfulness. We use the object as a tool to access the mind of mindfulness. Now, this is me, not him. And for that, any object is equally useful. So it can be breath or it can be controlling. It can be a pristine sense of coolness and little subtle vibrations, or it could be a massive whole body-mind feeling of hatred. Is like this. It's the awareness that we're recognizing, developing the steadiness of, not trying to make better objects. And you'll know when you're trying to make better objects because right away the Sakaya Ditti leads us into either greed, wanting to achieve something, or aversion, you know, trying to get rid of something, trying to stop something, or the delusion, you don't know what the heck's going on, or more, it's all about me. It's all about me. But then mindfulness can just notice that. And I, I'm not saying it's easy, but the more we start to do it and trust it, it gets more natural. It starts to be that this old suit of clothes, the old fuzzy bathrobe of me, 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 isn't the only way of recognizing a moment of reality. So here we have all these moments to practice, simply recognizing mindful awareness, mindful awareness. And a lot of times it feels like nothing much is going on. We want some flashy things going on. And if you can't have wonderful flashy things, we'll take some big trauma. Better that than boring, right? Nothing's happening. But awareness doesn't ever get bored. We start to notice, this is back to Mingyur Rinpoche again. So as we're using every object to recognize awareness, then we start to recognize the quality of the mind, the quality of the mind that's aware in any moment of awareness. Not just the object, not just the phenomenon perceived by the mind. This is what James was pointing to last night. When he talked about, you know, he likes to, I mentioned in the beginning, those sense of interest in the mind and relaxation and kindness. When he was doing it, saying, oh, those are the wholesome qualities that we start to recognize. They're like the, when interest is really a quality of bright mind, of wisdom, of non-delusion. Relaxation, I'm thinking, is really like a quality of non-greed, the fixation of clinging, of holding on to something, is relaxed. It's just as it is right now. Non-greed. And kindness, of course, obviously non-hatred. Not like the kindness of, oh, it's so nice. It's just, it's like this without creating any negativity, any aversion, any me around it. It's just like this, kind. Just kind attention can just be with as it is. And that's all. In fact, one of Ajahn Sumedho's definitions this definitions of metta, which I really love. Metta in terms of being with, with something or someone that's difficult is to just to experience the difficult or unpleasant in a person or a situation, just as it is, 
without creating anything around it. I love that. It's like this. And space. Nothing else you need to do. So this is really samasati. As Ajahn Chah says, we become the knower of objects, not the owner of objects. And so slowly, slowly, as the awareness gains momentum, we, the, the right view, the understanding, it starts to be more our um, default mode. Not completely, but it does start to be at times. Sometimes we actively remember it, but then there's times when, you, like I gave the example, oh, all of a sudden, like, oh, it's just like this now. That'll just arise spontaneously, and it's, oh yeah, it's so obvious. And we really start to shift to the more accurate way of seeing. I'll just end with this very well-known sutta from the Buddha. I know you know this. Two alternate ways of perceiving. And we go back and forth between them. This mind heart is radiant, but it doesn't show it's radiant because passing torments, kalesa, defilements, come and obscure it, hide it. The unwise, ordinary person does not understand this as it really is. So for them, there is no development, no cultivation of mind. You just think, oh, this is just how it is. Greed is here and I'm the victim of it and there's nothing to do. This is the truth. This mind is radiant and it shows its radiance when it is unobscured by passing kalatia, torments. The wise, noble disciple understands this as it is. And so for them, there is cultivation, development of mind. So that's what we're doing. We recognize that when the, the, the kalashas are covering the radiance, we don't know, think that's all there is. We, re- I can recognize, we can recognize the torments, but we know it's a passing show. And when the radiance is there, just the simplicity of the heart-mind at ease, at peace, just starting with that. Don't go looking for nibbana. Just start with moments of purity when there's not greed, not hatred, not delusion. Recognize those moments as well. Just the simple radiance, really be with that. And when a new cloud comes, we don't despair. We know it's a cloud, conditions brought it together, Awareness that radiance is still accessible. So, just what I wanted to share about right view. So, you just sit quietly for a moment. Thank you for your kind attention. There's a bit more than half an hour for walking, and then please, if you have the energy to come back for sitting and chanting, again, it it 
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.